our reading this afternoon is uh, from uh, Galatians, Galatians 2, 19 to 21, page 1169 in the Church Bibles. It's a short uh, reading this afternoon, but a very sweet one. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. I think if I might be permitted, I'll read this lovely passage again. For I, through the law, died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Thank you, Lord, for your wondrous word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Ken, for reading God's word to us. It's a very short passage. We've been in a series where we've had lots of long passages, lots of difficult names. So it's good and refreshing to sometimes get a, a shorter passage. But this was short and sweet, just like Ken said. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word is living and active. And we pray, God, that you would speak now to our hearts, revealing to us the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. We commit this time to you in Jesus name. Amen. So quick question. Have you ever found something in your food that shouldn't be there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that's 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 only one time. Uh, a delay. But look, I remember when I was a kid, my parents took me to a restaurant and I had ordered a bowl of spaghetti bolognese. And as I was eating the spaghetti bolognese, then all of a sudden I found myself choking. And so as I'm choking, I pull my hand in my mouth, put my hand in my mouth, and I start to pull out these long strands of hair. Mess me up. Mess me up to this day. To this day. I have a phobia of dead hair. If I see hair in the bathtub, I'm freaking out. If I see hair in my food, I'm freaking out. I'm not paying for it. I take it back. You know, here. This is this belongs to you. That that the whole experience 
mess me up. But if you think that's bad, I had a good friend of mine who years ago back into Chicago went to a restaurant and she ordered a bucket of chicken. And what does she find in her bucket of chicken? James is shaking his head like he know. She found a rat's tail. (laughs) I know. It's awful, right? So you guys are probably wondering, okay, where are you going with this? Hang with me. All right. All right. Just hang with me. Okay. You know, and if you, if you, if you look at YouTube, you will find, right, a, a myriad of CCTV videos of food that's been tampered with. People spitting in other people's food either as a prank or to be vindictive. So look, it's not uncommon to hear from time to time warnings from television or newspapers that someone has deliberately tampered with our food. Food tampering is a serious thing, whether you're doing it as a prank or doing it to be malicious. It puts people's lives at risk. So when things like this happen, action must be taken or else people will suffer. Well, Paul's letter to the Galatians was a bit of a public health warning. Someone or some people had tampered with the gospel. They had added something to the gospel that was putting the lives of many people at risk. You see, when Paul brought the gospel to the Galatians, it was a simple message that people are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But false teachers called Judaizers were telling young Christians that Paul's preaching of the gospel was in effect or in a sense easy believism. That it was woefully inadequate. So they would say dangerous things like, yes, yes, Jesus Christ did die on the cross for our sins and that's wonderful, but that's not enough to save you. You must now add to the cross your circumcision or adherence to the law. So in other words, it's Christ plus circumcision. It's Christ plus your good works. It's Christ plus your good behavior. It's Christ plus baptism. It's Christ plus all of these other things that saves you. And what they forgot is that Christ plus everything equals nothing. But Christ plus nothing equals everything. Because if my good behavior could save me, if my sexual purity could save me, if me coming to church, if me paying my tithes and eating the right foods, being a good citizen, gluing my bum to the pavement to save the environment, if all of these things could save me, And as Paul says in verse 22, Christ died for nothing. But Christ died in order that we might be freed from the burden of Christ plus everything. But these Judaizers, or who Paul rightfully identifies as false brothers, they didn't like the freedom of the gospel. They didn't like it. And so, 
Paul has to once again bring them back to an understanding of what biblical grace is, what the biblical gospel is, the gospel of grace. And he does this by pointing their attention to a doctrine or teaching that every Christian must understand, and it is the doctrine of justification. It is a doctrine that Paul had to even remind Peter of. One of Jesus' closest disciples about in chapter 2 of Galatians, verses 11 to 14. Because here is Peter, one of the cornerstones of the Christian faith. He is capitulating to the pressure of his Jewish brothers to assimilate Gentile believers into Jewish ways of living in order for them to become fully Christian. And Paul says, no, sir, no, sir, Peter, you should know better. Verses 15 to 16, Paul says, Peter, don't you remember that we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified in Christ not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. If you don't know what justification is, if you're new here to the Christian faith, welcome. But justification is essentially a fancy theological term that simply means to be declared righteous on the basis of faith alone. Justification doesn't make you righteous. That's what sanctification does. Sanctification, another fancy theological word, is the process by which I am made to be what God has already declared me to be. The moment you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, He sends His Holy Spirit into your life and He begins to change you from the inside out, from the person you once were to the person He is creating you to be a person who is being created to look more and more like Jesus. You may still have your struggles. You may still get angry and say and do things that are not pleasing to God. You may still lie occasionally or have lustful thoughts. You may still struggle with fears and anxieties. But that's because sanctification does not mean sinless perfection. The reality is we will never be perfect in this life. I will never be sinless. But the more I grow in Christ, the more I sin less. That is the Christian life. Sanctification is a process. Justification is a one-time act. Justification is what God does for sinners who believe that they are saved by Jesus' righteousness, not by their own righteousness. Romans 3.20 Paul says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. And listen, 
If we are not justified by the law, but by Christ, then it also means that the law, hear this, the law cannot condemn you. It cannot. So if you're feeling condemned or fearful that God will no longer hear your prayers or care for you because you sinned or because you made a mistake, you slipped up or you simply forgotten what the Christian life was all about. And you're feeling bad and down and beating yourself up because of that is the law at work in your life. That is not grace. That is not justification. We are dead to the law. So what Paul wants to communicate to this church in Galatia is that the law can no longer hurt them. It can't harm you because you are covered with the righteousness of Christ. So it's in this context of Paul talking about how a person is justified by faith. He then goes on to talk about what the Christian life looks like. And that's what I want to talk about today. How do we live out this life that has been justified by God through faith in Him? And what we see in these verses is that the Christian life is a crucified life. The Christian life is a Christ-filled life. The Christian life is a faith-filled life. And then finally, the Christian life is a grace-filled life. Look at verse 19. Paul says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. Don't you just love that? I have been crucified with Christ. Now Paul has an interesting testimony. Right here was a brother who was steeped in Judaism. He understood these Judaizers. These were once his people before he met Christ. Paul was someone who grew up a religious Pharisee. So if there was anybody who knew the law, it was Paul. In fact, Galatians 1.14, he says he excelled in his understanding of the law far beyond his peers. In his biography in Philippians chapter 3, he said if there was anyone who can take confidence in their ability to keep the law, it was him. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. A Hebrew of Hebrews, a top scholar in the faith. He was one who persecuted the church because he felt like Christians, they got it wrong. And as for righteousness based on the law, get this. This was his own words. He's like, I was faultless. No one could look at my life externally and say that I wasn't righteous. People will look at my life and say, oh yeah, that brother, he got it right with God. What Paul is saying here is that before he came to faith in Jesus Christ, 
He was trying to save himself through strict adherence to the law, but he was never fully living for God. It was all for him. It was all for the accolades. It was all for the respect of his peers, the praises of man, or to win God's approval. But what Paul realized is that the law revealed that he could never make himself acceptable to God because he could never keep and fully obey all that the law requires of him. See, Paul knew what was going on in his own heart, even if other people didn't see it. They didn't see the stuff that he was wrestling with in his heart. The murderous thoughts, the lustful thoughts. The animosity, the greed, the pride. Faultless before the eyes of men. But Paul realized that all that the law requires of me, I can't do it. And I'm dying on the inside. Paul realized that the law revealed that he could never make himself acceptable to God. Because he could never keep and fully obey all that the law required. So in order for Paul to actually live for God, he had to die to the law. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now he's not talking about a literal crucifixion. What Paul is showing us here is a picture of baptism. In the passage we read earlier in Romans chapter 6, to be baptized with Christ is to be baptized into his death. It is to be united with him in his likeness, in his death. When Melissa and Tegan went down into the water, it was a picture of going into the grave and being buried with Christ. And coming up out of the water is a picture of being raised with Christ to walk in the newness of life. So if we have been baptized with Christ, if you have been baptized with Christ, then we can say with Paul that I have been crucified with Christ. So what has been crucified? Well, for Paul, it was his death to the law. It was death to seeking God's approval by his performance. But for all of us, to be crucified with Christ means to die to self. It means to die to fleshly desires. It means death to this world, death to our sense of entitlement, death to the idolized vision of the life that we want in order for us to truly discover the life that God has, the abundant life that Jesus offers us. See, the crucified life simply means that we are following in the way of Christ when we surrender our will to His, as He surrendered His will to the will of the Father. Christian life is a crucified life. Secondly, the Christian life is a Christ-filled life. And I love this. I love this. Paul says that I have been crucified with Christ. 
And it is I no longer. And he says, I'll be crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But it is Christ who lives in me. Now this paradox is important for Christians to understand. And here's why. Because we all want to be better versions of ourselves. I hear that so many times. And, and I know this is true of humanity because every time I go to Waterstones in Trafalgar Square, I notice that the self-help book section has just grown. It gets bigger and bigger every year. We're always seeking ways to improve and to better ourselves. And that's great. But when it comes to living the Christian life, we can take this self-help mentality and what we end up doing is defaulting to some rules-based system or principle to follow in order to accomplish that version of us being better. And that's essentially what self-help is. It's a set of principles that we derive to tame our unruliness, to squelch our sinful sinful tendencies, to get control over our outbursts, to curb our appetites, to restrain our bad temper, or to help us to stop yelling at our spouse or kids. You think, if I could just make myself keep those rules and commands then I would be a better person. And look, friends, Christ wants you to be a better person. He wants you to be more loving. Christ wants you to squelch your sinful desires. He wants you to get control over your covetousness, over your outbursts and bad temper. But the way to do it is not by managing your external behavior, but by coming and by coming up with a system of rules and principles that you feel will help you to be better. It's by dying to self and letting Christ come alive in you. It's crucifying your efforts, your principles, your self-help tactics, and it's letting Christ empower you by His Spirit to be who He has already declared you to be. Look, brothers and sisters, and trust me when I tell you this, Christ wants to change you more than you want to change yourself. And how do we know this? Look at verse 20. We read that Christ loves us and he gave himself for us. Christ loved us enough to die on the cross for us in order that we might die to self and that His life may come alive in us. He wants us to change. That's why He came into this world. That's why He gave His life as a ransom for many. Because He loved us that much to see us going down the wrong path and then stepping into history and saying, no more. You're doing it the wrong way. You're going about it the wrong way. Let me live the life that I have called you to live. Let me live it through you. 
Christ wants to feel every corner of your heart and mind. He wants His presence to shape and to transform your every thoughts and your actions. He wants His Word to shape and transform the way that you relate and connect with others. He wants to permeate your entire being, molding your character, guiding your decisions so that you can radiate His love to all of those around you. He wants to do this for you. He doesn't want you to take the reins and say, I got it. Jesus says, let me do it for you. Let me live the life that I have called you to live for you. And he wants to do this because he loves us. The Christian life is a Christ-filled life. And the third thing we see is that the Christian life is a faith-filled life. Now look, faith implies trust. Living by faith means constantly trusting in the finished work of Christ. It means trusting that if you are in Christ, you are dead to the law and you are alive in God. To lose faith in this gospel truth means that you risk relapsing back into sinful habits or a merit-based system where you're constantly seeking affirmation from God if whether or not you are good enough. That's not living by faith. That's living by fear. That's living with a deficient understanding of the gospel, a gospel that has been tampered with. A faith-filled life is trusting that we are alive to God, not by our performance, but by Christ's performance on the cross. What Jesus did for us on the cross is that He removed the burden of, of us having to depend on our own efforts to be made right with God. And it's faith in Christ's finished work that makes available to us an amazing life that we could never achieve in and of ourselves. The Christian life is a faith-filled life. It's believing God's word when it says that your sins have been forgiven. It's believing God's word when he says that you have been redeemed. It's believing God's word when he says that you are my child. It's believing God's word when he says that I have snatched you as a branch from the burning fire. It's believing God's word when he says that my spirit will be in you to lead you and to guide you and that I will keep you. It's believing God's word when he says that I have given you a hope and a future. The Christian life is stepping out of the boat onto the waves as we make our way to Jesus. And it's trusting that He will enable us to walk on water, to live the impossible life that He's calling us to live as we have our eyes firmly fixed on Him. 
It's also trusting that in those moments when we lose faith and we find ourselves like Peter, seeking, sinking under the weight of our own efforts, we can trust that the loving arms of Christ will be there to rescue us, to draw us out of the waters. Because we know that the Christian life is an unwavering reliance on Christ's grace to keep us. That's a life of faith. The Christian life is a faith-fueled life. And then finally, the Christian life is a grace-fueled life. Look at verse 21. Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ, he died in vain. Paul is once again emphasizing the central importance of God's grace in the Christian life. The phrase not setting aside the grace of God really underscores the idea that salvation is a result of God's grace and not human effort. If that were the case, then Paul's argument here is that the death of Christ would lose its purpose if human effort could achieve salvation. So what Paul is saying here, in this stage of his life, is give me grace. Give me grace. I tried living by the law. I tried to to, to make myself right with God. And then Jesus, he offers his life for me and says that if you trust in my righteousness, then you are justified. Paul's like, give me grace. Give that to me. I want grace. I don't want the law. I tried human effort. It doesn't work. So Paul is ending chapter 2 by urging the Galatians not to abandon the foundational principle of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Salvation does not come through our strict observances of the law. And let me be clear, Paul is not arguing that the commands of God no longer have a place in the believer's life. We are called to keep Jesus' teaching and to obey His Word. And that's clear all throughout Paul's writings. Jesus even goes on to say that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But what Paul is saying here is that without the grace that God supplies to help you obey His Word, then it's all in vain. Because the Christian life is all about reliance on the grace of God. It's living knowing that we have been justified by His grace through faith. For if not for the grace of God, our faith would be useless. If not for the grace of God, our repentance would be meaningless. If not for the grace of God, our baptism would be fruitless. And without the grace of God, 
uh, salvation would be impossible. The life you are called to live, Melissa, Tegan, the life we are called to live, Grace Church Broccoli, is a life that is completely reliant on the grace of God. You have been justified by grace through faith. And the same grace that justified you will empower you to live the crucified life, the Christ-filled life, the faith-filled life, and the grace-filled life. Tim Keller says it this way, Christ will either do everything for you or he's done nothing for you. But Christ has done everything for us, church. And he will continue to do everything for you as you trust him with this life that you now live. Let me pray. Oh God, we're so thankful for your grace. Where would we be without it? We thank you, God, that it is your grace that has called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And God, you have shown us and you continue to show us the abundant life that you offer to those who trust you, who have faith in your finished work. So God, give us confidence. Continue to fill our hearts with confidence. God, we need your grace to live the life that you are calling us to live. Because when we understand that God, it is by your grace that we are saved. Even when we fall short, Lord, we can get back up knowing that our works don't save us, that you don't see us as failures, you don't see us as liars, you don't see us as our sin or as the enemy wants us to believe ourselves to be. You see us as children redeemed by grace. And we want to thank you for that, God. In Jesus' name. Amen.